Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. J. Robert Douglas of Carmel, Illinois, the president of the Illinois Historical Society. We say that Carmel again because we want you to remember it. It's not Carmel. His distinguished career has included being a newspaper editor and writer, as well as a researcher and a writer for the Reader's Digest magazine. For two years, he was state chairman of the March of Dimes and raised over $3 million to fight polio and birth defects. His published works include magazine series on Lincoln's life in Indiana. He's been a speaker to many groups, including the Civil War Roundtable at Vanderburg Courthouse in Evansville, Indiana. His talk tonight will be on the great fighting general of the Civil War, General Mike Lerner. Mike Lerner. <laughs> I wrote down one of the General Mike Lerner. And I give you our distinguished speaker, J. Robert Douglas. And thank you very much. President Verland, members of this round table, and guests. <coughs> Bill Davis doesn't know how close he came to telling about the Confederate Constitution tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about swinging. We were doing all the swinging driving up here today from Carmine. And I'll never again say a derogatory word about a woman driver. I'd driven about a hundred miles and turned the wheel over to Dr. Stokey's wife. And at a little place called Fithian, I'll never forget it. I never heard of it before. We were coming down a hill and a farmer in a big truck stopped because it was a stop highway. So Mrs. Stokey started down the hill. And just as she started down the hill, the truck came out and blocked our lane. Well, we all gave up except Mrs. Stokey. I knew we were going to hit the truck broadside. But she swerved and headed for a deep embankment and the tires screamed and the car teetered. And after she missed the truck, she swung again and we went for the other embankment. And we almost turned over and we rocked and we swung and finally she straightened out the car and we all gave a prayer. And I knew that that speech in my glove locker would be given tonight. <laughs> When I first arrived, Berlin Sprague asked me if I'd have a drink, and he said, you can have one before you speak and two afterward. Well, I'd like to have had all three down at Fithian. <laughs> <laughs> I promised Bish Thompson that I'd bring you greetings from the Civil War Roundtable of Vanderburg Courthouse in Evansville, Indiana, where we have fought uh, Last night, we fought our 150th engagement since March 1955. 
And I also promise to bring you greetings from one of the state's youngest historical societies, Old Gallatin County. After all these years, they finally have a historical society, and it is a good one, with 485 members within six months. And Mrs. Lawler, the president, asked me to tell you that they're sorry now that uh, Shawneetown refused to lend Chicago money 130 years ago. <laughs> she said to tell you that they think uh, you're uh, a rather good risk now and be glad to let you have some at 7%. <laughs> Coming up from the south to bivouac with you, Dr. Stokey, my chief of staff, and our two camp followers drove 300 miles. And riding with his, us in spirit, because we talked about him on the way, was that shirt sleeve hero of equality, Major General Michael Kelly Lawler, the fighting Irishman whose courage and military exploits too long have been dimmed by such Southern Illinois leaders as Generals Johnny Logan and uh, Johnny McClernand. Whence comes this story of Mike Lawler? Where does one look for facts other than the Illinois State Historical Library, the Library of Southern Illinois University, the writings of Professor Jonathan T. Doris, who devoted 20 years to research the Lawler story, the memoirs of U.S. Grant, Bruce Canton's Grant Moves South, the writings of Chicago Times correspondent Sylvanus Cadwallader, the files of the New York Tribune, where else? To make Mike Lawler live and breathe again, where else? How else? By walking where he walked, strolling the streets of Shawneetown and equality, over hills and through fields he once farmed, talking to people who lived while he was still alive. And to climb the hill and stand at the side of the old Lawler farmhouse, now occupied by a modern brick residence. So stand with me there. And look westward across the Saline River Valley to equality in the distance. And look southward to an adjoining hill and see the old slave house where Lawler's father-in-law chained the slaves he worked at his salt wells. And then turn and look northward to a busy intersection where highways 1 and 13 cross. And there at the popular Crossroads restaurant, Hundreds of people go for fiddler catfish and chicken dinners topped off with fresh rhubarb pie. And as the tourists sit there at the restaurant and look out a window 
They see a woods on top of a hill. But they don't know that those trees hide the graveyard of Major General Lawler and his father-in-law who built Hickory Hill Mansion with profits from those salt wells. Nobody tells them. There isn't a historical marker to let all these people know that they are so near to a thrilling chapter of Civil War history. Mike Lawler was more than a shadowy figure in history to me after I talked with two of his grandsons, heard them tell of the early days in Shawneetown and equality, days on the Lawler farm when the Civil War was fresh in people's minds, and not just a fading memory. The living grandchildren of General Lawler are scattered across the country now. None in Shawneetown or Equality or even Gallatin County, where this Irish immigrant farmed, kept store, and became to them a living legend of the Mexican and Civil Wars. Today there are numerous, oh many Lawlers living in Gallatin County. Mrs. James Lawler is president of the Historical Society. But there are no direct descendants of General Mike <coughs> in the county. The Lawlers living there now join up with the General's family back in the midst of Irish history. One grandson, William T. Lawler of Jerseyville, told me all of us grandchildren were born at the old Lawler farmhouse east of Equality. Ten of the living grandchildren are the children of R.E. Lawler, youngest son of the general. And it was my father who gave the general's sword, pistol, and regimental flag to the historical museum in Springfield, and the Lawler papers to the Southern Illinois University Library, <coughs> and the eldest grandson, the late R.E. Walters, was 83 when I interviewed him in Evansville, Indiana in 1961. And he and his wife Mary recalled the early days in Shawneetown and Equality. And he said, I was only four years old when the general died and I only dimly remember him. But I well remember Mrs. Lawler and the big square farmhouse the general built high off the ground. There I spent many happy days with Grandma Lawler. Michael Kelly Lawler was born in County Kildare, Ireland in 1814 and was less than a year and a half old when his parents brought him to America. John and Elizabeth Lawler finally settled in Gallatin County in 1819 when Shawneetown was one of the most important towns in Illinois. Mike was not quite 23 when he married Elizabeth Crenshaw, whose father, John Hart Crenshaw, was a grandson of John Hart, one of the New Jersey signers of the Declaration of Independence. Crenshaw owned 30,000 acres of land, 
was prospering in the salt-making business, the principal industry of Gallatin County. Nearby were natural salt springs, and on the banks of the Saline River, Crenshaw built furnaces for reducing the briny water into salt crystals. And there were sinister stories of slavery and terror and torture that came from the Crenshaw Mansion <coughs> built atop Hickory Hill in sight of the Lawler farmhouse. Mike Lawler's father-in-law leased slaves to cut the firewood and boil the brine and sack the salt. For the Illinois Constitution of 1818 made an exception of the Gallatin salt industry when it prohibited slavery in Illinois. And building the Crenshaw house, workmen hewed 12 columns from pine trees to support the first and second story verandas stretching 50 feet across the facade of the mansion. And on the third floor, they built tiny cells, each lower than the height of a man, equipped with narrow bunks. There were two whipping posts on which men could be strung up by their wrists their toes barely touching the lower cross pieces. <clears throat> and to these cells, after work at the salt furnaces, the slaves were brought each night under close guard. Crenshaw was careful because he would have been required to pay the owner the full price had one escaped. And in sight of this Crenshaw mansion on Hickory Hill, Mike and Elizabeth Lawler farmed, prospered, and had 10 children. Now Mike liked military life, and when he was 28, he was commissioned captain of the Gallatin Guards, 4th Illinois Militia. When war with Mexico broke out in May 1846, Mike was raring to go. He recruited a company and was commissioned captain of Company G, 3rd Regiment, Illinois Volunteers. They rendezvoused at Alton, left by boat July 22nd, spent miserable months in Mexico, fighting fatigue, fever, sun, sand, snakes, measles, mosquitoes, and worst of all, inactivity. But they saw action in April, marching toward Mexico City. Lawler and his men fought at the Battle of Cerro Gordo. His regiment suffered three killed, 13 wounded. His brigade captured General Santa Ana's coach, cork leg, $20,000 in cash, baggage wagons, mules, provisions, and papers. <coughs> when General Scott was informed that most of the 12-month volunteers would not re-enlist, he halted the march toward Mexico City and ordered all the 12-month volunteers home. And there were seven regiments, including the Illinois 3rd. On May 18th, they were paid off in New Orleans and made their way home. This 3rd Illinois left Alton with 989 men, and it mustered out 450. 
The 539 men lost included 140 killed in battle or dying from disease, 399 discharged because of sickness. But Mike Lawler was one of the few who wanted to re-enlist. And as soon as he returned home, he started recruiting a company of mounted men. Governor Augustus French commissioned him captain in August, and off they went to Mexico. They had no encounters with the foe, experienced only routine service, and Lawler was discharged at Shawneetown in October 1848, 34 years old and a two-year veteran. Farmer, lawyer, storekeeper at Shawneetown where he sold groceries, dry goods, nails, iron, boots, and shoes, Mike Lawler made money in various enterprises. But most of the time, he was a farmer who tilled his hilly acres and hauled his crops to Shawneetown. And those, you know, were the days of mud streets and voluminous skirts and swallowtail coats and the booming steamboat traffic on the Ohio. Yes, and they were days of drums, for rumblings of a gathering storm echoed out of Washington and Springfield. And when the storm broke, when Fort Sumter was fired upon, when Lincoln called for volunteers, Mike Lawler was ready. And excitement crackled like summer lightning up and down the Saline River Valley that April of 61. And Lawler began organizing volunteers. He heard about the countryside, talking to men, sent messengers to others. He recruited in Perry, Gallatin, Jackson, Alexander, Pulaski, Jefferson, and Wayne counties. <clears throat> and his record as a Mexican War officer enabled him to recruit 10 companies into the 10, 18th Regiment of Volunteers. So ready for war, Lawler moved his family to the Crenshaw Mansion on Hickory Hill and left behind at his farm his son-in-law and daughter, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Evans. The 18th was mustered into service, state service, at Anna in May 1861 by Captain U.S. Grant, who was on the staff of the Adjutant General, and into the United States service for three years on May 28th. Lawler's commission as colonel was issued by Governor Richard Yates. Placed under the command of General McClernand, the 18th was ordered to Birds Point, Missouri. It captured Charleston, Missouri, guarded gunboats at Mound City, and then was sent to Cairo, Illinois. At that time, <coughs> Lawler was 47 years old, heavily bearded, he weighed over 200 pounds. He was described as a large and excessively fat man, a fine type of fighting Irishman, a devout Catholic, strictly temperate, jovial, but a disciplinarian. And his girth was so great, he couldn't make a sword belt go about his waist. So Mike hung a strap from his shoulder, and on that he suspended his sword. 
In October at Carroll, Lawler was president of the military commission and the first thing he did was close the town's houses of ill fame. Soon after that, Lawler was in real trouble. <laughs> his reputation as a fighting Irishman did not come entirely from his conduct in battle. He was ordered court-martialed on account of numerous charges that had been accumulating against him. And the most serious charge deserves explanation in Lawler's own words. On September 30th, he had written to General McClernand, an aggravated case of murder occurred here this morning at 2 o'clock. Robert Dick Urban shot William Evans and killed him instantly. I thought at first to turn the culprit over to civil authorities. But on reflection, I recalled of a similar case that occurred in Texas some years since. And if I recollect rightly, the murderer was tried by court-martial. I await your orders in this case told by McClernand to turn the prisoner over to Pulaski County authorities, Lawler on November the 20th wrote to McClernand telling him he had immediately offered to do so, but they refused to receive the prisoner. They stated that a court of competent jurisdiction would not sit in that county for some months, by which time the witnesses being soldiers would probably be beyond the reach of process and that to receive him would be in effect to release him. And Lawler wrote, the apprehensions caused by this answer caused great excitement and commotion in the regiment. Not only lest the prisoner escape, but that another of its members might become the victim of his fury. In deference to the just indignation of the regiment and for the purpose of preserving order and discipline, I delivered the prisoner into the hands of his company. And on the next day, the captain of his company summoned 12 men to try the prisoner. They did so and found him guilty of murder. And the next day, he was hung. If I have committed an error, it is an honest one. <laughs> Only from an earnest desire to preserve the efficiency of my regiment. <coughs> and so, the most serious charge against Mike was that of permitting Dickerson to be hanged. The second charge was conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. With these seven specifications, with drawn sword, he had ordered and compelled two men of his regiment to engage in a fistfight in the presence of his soldiers. At Mound City, he had beaten certain soldiers with his fists. At Carroll, he had beaten, knocked down, and kicked another private. He had ordered certain officers to patrol Carroll's streets and knock down all who refused to go peacefully to their quarters. He had caused emetic drugs to be put into whiskey and sent to soldiers of his command in the guardhouse, causing them to be very ill from drinking it. <laughs> he had compelled by threats of personal violence one of his captains to beat and knock down two privates in the presence of his soldiers. He had threatened to knock down the said captain when he remonstrated against executing the order. And there were other charges with specifications. 
And in the fourth charge, it was repeated that Colonel Lawler had permitted Dickerman to be unfairly tried, condemned, and executed. General Halleck ordered the court-martial to be held December 16th at Carroll and detailed 12 officers, including General McClernand, for it. Well, Lawler was exonerated of the first charge, the Dickerman hanging, but found guilty of the Dickerman execution in the fourth charge and of two minor charges. And so he was declared guilty and sentenced to dismissal from the service. But uh, General Halleck reviewed the case, found a lack of evidence, disapproved the uh, sentence, and ordered Lawler released and his sword restored. Mike's regiment received its first testing in fierce battle in the capture of Forts Henry and Donaldson in February 1862. His regiment led the advance upon Confederate fortifications at Donaldson. Early in the engagement of the 15th, Colonel Lawler was severely wounded in an arm, but he refused to retire from the field. Captain Samuel Marks reports said, <coughs> Colonel Lawler, although severely wounded, remained on the ground until the regiment had all retired, exhibiting throughout the trying scene a perfect coolness and self-possession. And the Illinois 18th in that battle suffered 213 casualties, 51 killed and 162 wounded. Lawler took a leave of absence after that to permit his wound to heal. And uh, he was at home when the Battle of Shiloh was fought, April 6th and 7th. He was most anxious to return to duty. His uh, one grandson told me the story of how he fretted over reports of the awful losses suffered by both sides in that greatest battle fought up to that time on the North American continent. And after 63 days of leave, he hurried south while steamboats came up the Ohio and Mississippi rivers carrying those thousands of Union wounded and dying men. Lawler reported at Pittsburgh Landing in April the 22nd. He participated in the capture of Corinth, commanded General Logan's 1st Brigade during Logan's illness, and then as senior colonel, was commander of the 3rd Brigade, engaging in numerous skirmishes in western Tennessee and northern Mississippi. He drove General Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry across the Tennessee River and prevented its return. And then his service was rewarded by a commission as Brigadier General of Volunteers at Corinth, April the 25th, and he was ordered to report to McClernand for duty. At Port Gibson, General Lawler assumed command of the 2nd Brigade, 14th Division, 13th Army Corps, with 2,300 men under his command. Well, Mike's greatest hour had not yet come, but it was near. And as usual, he was ready. And when it came, he led one of the great charges of the war. Lawler's audacity and bravery in the assault at Big Black River before the siege of Vicksburg was his outstanding exploit. His action that day, witnessed by General Grant, led the commander to declare 
when it comes to just plain hard fighting, I would rather trust old Mike Lawler than any of them. Here was the scene that May 16th. <clears throat> Champion Hill towered 140 feet above the surrounding country. Its steep sides were cut up with ravines and gullies overgrown with dense woods. And on top of that plateau, southeast of Vicksburg and east of the Big Black River, General John C. Pemberton's Confederates were entrenched. Generals Alvin P. Hovey and Logan became the, began that Union attack in the morning. And you all know what a furious battle ensued with attack and counterattack. Most of McClernand's corps, including Lawler's brigade, were some distance away. And they rushed into the battle at 2.30 p.m., just as Hovey's men were about to be driven down the slope. Lawler's men, said McClernand, here cast the trembling balance in our favor. Lawler himself narrowly escaping the effects of a shell his men dashed forward, shooting down the enemy's artillery horses, driving away his gunners, and capturing two cannon. And Pemberton's army broke and fled toward Vicksburg, hotly pursued by Carr's division with Lawler's brigade in the lead. And here was the situation the next day. General Halleck had messaged Grant, advising him to leave the vicinity of Vicksburg, and to cooperate with General Banks in an assault on Port Hudson farther south. And although the Confederates had fled toward Vicksburg, Pemberton had left a rear guard to fight for the river crossings. And they were formidably entrenched. The terrain between them and the Union troops was an awesome sight. To storm the enemy defenses, the Union troops must cross an open field swept by rifle and artillery fire. And at the edge of this field was a bayou filled with water, fallen timber, and brush. And on the far side of the swamp, the Confederates were entrenched behind breastworks of cotton bales covered with earth. And late in the forenoon, Colonel William Kinsman of the 23rd Iowa Volunteers proposed to charge the enemy's works and drive them out at the point of the, of the bayonet, and he asked Lawler's consent. And that day, the hot sun poured down mercilessly on them, and the big fighting Irishman squinted at the Confederate lines across the field, the bio, the breastworks, and he took off his coat and stood there in his shirt sleeves. And back of the lines to Lawler's left stood General Grant, pondering Halleck's message about retiring. And at this tense moment, Lawler decided to attack without waiting for orders. Swinging his sword and calling to his men, Lawler led them in a dash across that cotton field. General McClernand's official report said, General Grant heard great cheering to the right of our line and 
looking in that direction, saw Lawler leading a charge upon the enemy. And Grant hurriedly mounted and rode toward the battle lines to watch the Union men advance through a hurricane of fire from the front and from sharpshooters on the right. And for 500 yards, they advanced through that field to the edge of the bayou. They halted there, poured a volley into the enemy, then plunged, plunged into the bayou. They sank in water and mud, some to their knees, others to their armpits, but plunged on over fallen trees. And they scrambled from the bayou and stormed the enemy rifle pits and breastworks with fixed bayonets. They captured 17 pieces of artillery, 1,460 rifles, and 1,120 prisoners. Lawler's brigade suffered 185 wounded and 14 killed, including Colonel Kinsman. After the victory, Assistant Secretary of War Charles A. Dana found Lawler sitting on a log at the edge of the woods, and he was brewing coffee. And while the pot boiled, quote, General Grant came up with his staff and thanked the brigadier with unusual warmth and abundance of praise. It was, said Dana, one of the most splendid exploits of the war. And Sylvanus Cadwallader of the Chicago Times said, it was at the same time the most perilous and ludicrous charge I witnessed during the war. And General Grant said, the charge was gallantly and successfully made and in a few minutes, the entire garrison with 17 pieces of artillery were the trophies of this brilliant and daring movement. And one of our own Civil War buffs, Ray Hines of Equality, likes to say, when Mike Lawler and his men climbed out on the bank of that bayou, the battle for Vicksburg was over. It was just a question of eating up their supplies. Before, before the siege of Vicksburg, Lawler's brigade suffered grave losses in an assault on May 22nd. Though the assault was repulsed and the Union forces driven back to their entrenchments, some of Lawler's men penetrated into the defenses farther than any others. General McClernand McClernand reported that Lawler's and Landrum's brigades carried the ditch, slope, and bastion of a fort. And of course, most of you, all of you know that some of the things McClernand said after that led to his dismissal. During the fighting at Vicksburg, General Lawler, the devout Catholic, heard a profane member of his staff loudly violating the Third Commandment. And he turned to him and said, I'm astonished to hear you praying at this time. I always say my prayers before going into battle. And again, to a youth undergoing a baptism of fire in his first battle, and knew no better than to dodge the singing minis, he said quietly but firmly, you damn little fool, don't dodge. Don't you know when you hear the bullets, they've already passed? And it cured the youth of the habit. By now, <laughs> Lawler had become a living legend among his troops and to New York and Chicago correspondents. 
In the New York Tribune on August the 5th, 1863, he was called the check shirt general who fights in his shirt sleeves. He shuns all military ostentation, wearing in field and camp a plain blue flannel suit, his trousers tucked into his boots, and a white felt hat. He wears no insignia of rank except a gilt cord on his hat, and from his shoulder hangs a strap on which is suspended his sword. He is a happy conversationalist and humorist and a strict disciplinarian. And his cherished maxim was known to troops and generals alike. If you see a head, hit it. In addition to saying his prayers before going into battle, Lawler always looked for an opportunity to attend mass. Aside from the court-martial, the only complaint about him was that he'd passed within the enemy lines one Sunday to hear mass, rendering himself liable to capture. Lawler fought on in Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. In March 1865, he was recommended for a commission as Major General. President Lincoln was approved, but he was assassinated before the commission was signed. It was signed by President Johnson April 27th to date March 13th. <clears throat> After the war, Lawler and his son John spent three years in Louisiana and Texas buying and selling horses. In 1868, he returned to his farm near Equality. In his absence, his house was destroyed by fire. Lawler's Jerseyville grandson tells of that fire. Farm hands were scarce, of course, during the war, and one day a man who claimed to be from Kentucky came by and asked for a job. He was hired, and a short time later, the house burned down and the man vanished. It was always thought, said the grandson, that this man was a southern spy or sympathizer sent there purposely to do harm. Lawler rebuilt the house, a huge, square, one-story affair, and there he hung up his sword, put away his pistol and regimental flag, and went back to his quiet life as a farmer. He died July 26, 1882, at the age of 68. General Lawler was my godfather, said the late Mrs. J.C. Coyle when I talked with her in her equality home. I don't remember him, but his widow lived for many years after his death, and I knew her well. My parents' home was a farm adjoining the Lawler farm. General Lawler is still revered in equality, where in 1913 they unveiled a handsome monument in his honor. Dr. James Womack, a state senator from equality, sponsored a bill in the legislature creating the memorial in equality's city park. And there women of the Tuesday Club look after the memorial and the park. This park, said Mrs. Coyle, was in a terrible condition a few years ago. The monument was neglected, the park grounds unsightly, cows grazed there and weeds grew high. And then our club cleaned up the park and planted trees, shrubbery, and flowers. And with the help of the village, we now keep it beautiful. And when I visited there this spring, 
Forsythia blossoms waved around the base of the monument. The grass was mowed and the shrubbery was rich and green. And I stood there and gazed at the bronze bas-relief portrait of handsome, bearded Mike Lawler. And then I set out to find his grave. And three miles east of this park, a sad sight greets the eyes in Hickory Hill Cemetery. On a high hill overlooking State Highways 1 and 13, General Lawler and his kinsmen are buried in a graveyard, now almost lost and forgotten. Weeds, underbrush, and trees almost hide the graves. Some stones have toppled over, and only dim paths lead to the graves of the Crenshaws and the Lawlers. And between the cemetery and an abandoned church, people who don't care have dumped cans and trash, and creating an eyesore at the church door and there beside the cemetery. And the lane leading up the hill to the cemetery is impassable. One must walk up the deeply rutted road and climb over fallen trees. You'd better wear high-top boots, I was advised, because of rattlesnakes and copperheads. And standing on that hilltop before the rubbish heap, the cemetery and the church, one sees three miles westward Equality City Park. And across a valley on Hickory Hill still stands the Crenshaw Mansion, the old slave house now owned by George Sisk. And there tourists still climb the stairs to the third floor and see the slave cells and the whipping posts. And back in the tangled cemetery, General Lawler's tombstone can be found in high weeds close by the rubbish dump. And the stone cross which once crowned his monument has been broken off. And there in the weeds lies Lawler's cross. Tonight I have brought you not one of the ten or 20 top generals of the Civil War. No, perhaps not one of the top 50 or 100. But I have brought you just Mike Lawler, a hard-working farmer who loved his country. Question period. Uh, Mike, uh, yeah, Mike. Uh, what 
found anything about that in my research about General Lawler. Did you leave that attack uh, a foot or a horse? Oh, a foot, yes. They, they ran, they charged across the uh, cotton field on foot. We have any more? Pete, you want to say something about that charge and give us a little more background on it? Oh, I remember, I remember the area very well, but it's very rough, and I wouldn't want to charge across there now. I understand that there also was quite a bit of uh, honeysuckle around the edge of the field, where now it's a cutful vine, but you can see that you trip and everything else. And a perfect field of fire. But I think this is a marvelous example of, well, let's frankly say, what can be done with a secondary character in the Civil War. Um, I have long advocated the study of some of the so-called secondary battles and people, and I think this is a perfect example of scholarship that can be done to bring out the fact that this war wasn't fought by just a handful of leading personalities. I would like to say in, in uh, fairness, excuse me, in fairness to the people of Gallatin County, now that they have destroyed the society, that they're going to do something about this thing. And they're going to get historical markers down there. That's the first thing they asked me, could they get one from Mike Lawler's grave? I said, not till you clean up that cemetery. And I have here tonight, if anybody's interested after the meeting, a story by, about Mike Lawler I wrote, and will show the tombstone with the, the cross broken off, and uh, the scenes in the park and several pictures about Mike Lawler. But they are going to clean that up. Ray Hines of the quality is going to get a, a group of men in there. And I'm going to wait for the Historical Society, and they're going in there and clean up that cemetery and fix the road. Any other questions? Well, I guess one other question is answered. Now we know why J. Robert Smith is the president of the Illinois State Historical Society. Thank you very much for all coming for coming.